Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We are going to read verses 1 through 5. Romans 6, 1 through 5. If you have, you might check in your in your bulletin. You have notes for uh, the sermon today. There's an outline there. There's some in the back in the other bulletins. If you don't have one, Romans chapter six verses one through five. Hear then the word of the Lord. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Father, we praise you for the gift of union with Christ. We thank you that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. We died with him. We were raised with him. We live with him. We are seated with him even right now in the heavenly places. Thank you for giving us new life through uniting us to your son who is the resurrection and the life. We pray, Father, that as we rest in Him, as we abide in Him, as we remain in the vine, as the branches that we would bear fruit this morning to glorify Your name, to humble ourselves before Your Word, and to understand what baptism is and what communion is and how these things were given to us as commands to obey, to enjoy You together as a church family. So help us now, Father, to see Your beauty to see the the kindness and goodness of these gifts, and most of all, to see the glory of Christ himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Where are true Christians? Where are the true Christians? Who are they? Who are they, and how can we know, how can we know who they are? How do you know who a true Christian is? Maybe another way to pose the question is this. How is the universal church made visible. The universal church is all Christians everywhere. Okay? All believers everywhere of all time. That is the universal church that's invisible. It's not one language, one ethnic people group, not one local church pastor, but it's all under chief, uh, the chief pastor, Jesus Christ. That's the universal church. All true Christians everywhere. How, does, how do the people in that group, how do those who are in the universal church become publicly visible and identifiable. How do you know who they are? Let me give you some potential answers. I know how you can know who they are. Look on their Facebook profile and see what religion they identify as. And if they identify as Christian, then they must be Christian. Or maybe get a business card. If if their business card says that they're a Christian in parentheses, then they're a real Christian. Or maybe they have a Christian tattoo. And that's how you could know who a true Christian is. 
Okay, those are silly answers. What about this? Self-profession. Because I say I'm a Christian. Because I say I believe in Jesus. Is that the way it's marked out? Well, Mormons will say that. So will Jehovah's Witnesses. So will Roman Catholics. They'll say they believe in Jesus and are united to Christ by faith. So is it just self-profession because I said it? Well, maybe it's self-profession with the pastor's approval or a, you know, a Christian friend's approval, and they think I'm a Christian, so therefore I'm publicly identifiable as a Christian. Maybe it's attendance at a church. But what if you're, what if you're attending a gospel-denying church? Roman Catholicism calls themselves a church. The Mormons are the church of the Latter-day Saints. So regular attendance at a church doesn't necessarily mean that you're publicly, publicly identifiable as a Christian. But what if it's attendance at a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church? Aha, that's how you know who the Christian is, because this person regularly attends a gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church. Well, like John said in our introduction here this morning, there are non-Christians in our midst. And a non-Christian, we'd love for a non-Christian to attend here for several months, to regularly attend. That would be great. That wouldn't mean they're a Christian, right? Because they're sitting here regularly attending. How often would you need to attend to make it regular enough to be identified as a Christian publicly? Maybe it's someone who attends once a month or something like that. I know how you can find out who a Christian is. Ask them if they've prayed a prayer. And if they've prayed a prayer, then you know they're a Christian. Or maybe it's those who've walked down an aisle to an altar call at an invitation. That's how you know publicly who a Christian is. Now, I don't want to say that these things are wrong. You know, it's good to attend a church. It's good to pray. Call on the name of the Lord to save you. But those are not the biblical answers to the question of how you know someone is publicly identified as a Christian. Or this group is publicly identified as a group of Christians. The Bible's answer is, does anyone know? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two visible markers of who is publicly identified as a Christian. Now, we'll look at both of these this morning. And this I confess this is more teachy than preachy this morning. And it's our last one like this. Next week, it's one text, Matthew 18, and I'm excited to preach next week. But um, we do need to understand this if we're going to understand what a local church is. These are the ordinances of a local church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we'll take time on, on both of these. First one is baptism. Now, let me give you a definition of baptism from our statement of faith, our church statement of faith. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. That's our statement of faith. I think it's a good statement. I think it's biblical. So it's the immersion of a professing believer in water in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, showing, symbolizing the union with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Does every Christian need to get baptized? Is it necessary to get baptized? That's a tricky question. Because it, what do you mean? Necessary for what? Is it necessary for salvation, for justification and right standing before God? You have to get baptized in water or you cannot go to heaven. Yes or no? No. You're right. It is not necessary for salvation. One thinks of the criminal on the cross, hanging next to Jesus, where Jesus, you know, said, Lord, remember me when you enter the kingdom. And he said, today you will what? Be with me in paradise. After you get baptized. Go down from the cross for a second. No, you just, you'll be with me in paradise. You believe in me, you call me Lord, submit to my lordship, trust in me, you're justified, you're converted. So it's not necessary for conversion or salvation. But it is necessary for obedience to Christ. If Christ commands it, then you must obey it. It's necessary for displaying saving faith under normal circumstances. Now, let me confess here from the start. I think, and if you have a Bible verse, please let me know. I'd certainly be open to it. I don't know a Bible verse in the New Testament that gives a straightforward command to readers today to get baptized. Now, Acts 2.41, um, be baptized, or Acts 2.38, right? What shall we do? Be baptized, or repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's Peter talking to the, the people at where? At Jerusalem and Pentecost, Right? That's a story. There's other commands, you know, rise up and walk and different commands. So it's not a direct command to us. It's telling a story. I don't know any command in the Bible that says you must get baptized in water. Not straightforward. But let me give you two reasons why it is commanded. Reason number one, by example. Every person who professes faith in the New Testament, what do they do immediately or soon after they, get, they profess faith? They get what? Baptized. So by example, you can't avoid it. It's everywhere. Secondly, by implication in the Great Commission. Just think about the Great Commission for a second. This is commanded to us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you're commanded to go make disciples and do what to these new converts? You're to what? Baptize them. And then you're to teach them to do what? Do all things, which means baptize others. Now, if you don't get baptized, you're a what? Hypocrite, right? I mean, you're telling them you need to get baptized. So it's not, Jesus is not saying in the Great Commission, go get baptized. He's telling you that you need to baptize others. And then you need to teach them to baptize others. And if you haven't done it yourself, how, why haven't you done it? You're not going to tell them to do something you haven't done, right? So by implication, I think with the Great Commission, you can't avoid it. If you're going to teach others to obey the Great Commission and disciple people and baptize others, then you yourself have to have done it and have done it, been done to you yourself. And so I think you have to. The Bible teaches you have to get baptized in obedience to Christ, in obedience to the Great Commission. Um, now, who can get baptized? This is a point of debate. We're not going to debate it here, but I would say that uh, believe, it's believer's baptism. That's what we, we teach here. We're a Baptist church. You have to believe in Christ. Now, why? Because baptism is a new covenant sign. And we'll get to that in a second. But the point, we'll, we'll get to the new covenant in a second. But the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 says that, not like the old covenant, in, with Israel, with Moses, if you were born, you were circumcised on the eighth day and you were part of the covenant community by birth. In the new covenant, God will circumcise not your skin, but your 
heart. And he'll cause you to be born again. He'll write his law on your heart and you'll love to obey him. You'll love him and you'll love others. And he'll put his spirit within you. So those who are part of the new covenant have been circumcised in the heart. They have God's word in their heart. They have the Holy Spirit in their heart. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And therefore, that's part of the new covenant community. And so, in other words, you have to exercise faith. Babies, we don't know if infants are saved or not yet. You could say, well, John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit before birth. Yes, he did. But the angel told us and told them, we don't have angels telling us which babies, which infants have the Holy Spirit, if any. And so, we just it has to be by faith. How do we know someone has the Holy Spirit? They receive him by faith when they trust in the gospel. Okay, so... Baptism is commanded by example and implication. It's for believers. It's a public commitment to Christ. And therefore, it has to be for believers. So now let's um, look at, if you're, if you're in your notes now, I have two categories with, with two bullets under each. What is baptism at its core? What does it mean? What's the significance of baptism? What is it a sign of? Two things. Public commitment to Christ and public commitment to Christ's people. Okay. Public commitment to Christ, public commitment to Christ's people. Let's look at the first one, public commitment to Christ. When you get baptized, you are saying as a new convert, I am publicly professing that I trust in who? Jesus. It's a public profession that I trust in Jesus and I'm committing myself to Christ. Now you're in Romans 6, correct? Keep your finger in Romans 6, but turn to Ephesians 2. We'll go right back to Romans 6. I prayed Ephesians 2 in our prayer time this morning, right before I started preaching. Ephesians 2 says this, and this is good news. If you're not a Christian, you want to pay attention right here because these are the verses that God is telling you about what the core of Christianity is. This is what Christianity is at its core. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. That's verses 1 through 3. You're dead. I'm dead in our sins. We're sinners. We're condemned before God and we're dead. But look at verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he loves us, he made us what? In verse 5. He made us what? Alive. We were dead in our sins. He made us alive with the Messiah, with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by what? By grace. And then you go to verse 8, okay? So you're dead in your sins. You're saved by grace, God's grace. And then how do you receive this grace? In verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. How do you get saved from your sins? By God's grace. What grace? The grace of Jesus Christ. You're made alive together with him. When was Jesus made alive? He was made alive after he died. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. Okay, if you're not a Christian, here's the core of Christianity. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners, taking on their death for their sin, their separation from God, their condemnation, their judgment. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, so he died. And when he was made alive, it says in Ephesians 2, you were made alive together with him. And then it says in verse 6, he seated in the heavenly places. Where are you seated? In the heavenly places. You are now one with Christ. By grace. Through faith. So if you're not a Christian, how do you become a Christian? 
How do you get forgiveness? How do you get union with Christ? How do you get acceptance before God even though you're a sinner condemned to hell like I'm a sinner? How do we get this forgiveness and salvation? Through faith. You have to trust in Jesus Christ. You have to turn from your sins. You have to turn from your self-righteousness and your own religion and your own religiosity. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. That's the gospel. Christ died for us and rose for us, so repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. I plead with you, if you're not a Christian, please even do that this morning. Now let's go to Romans 6. (coughs) That didn't mention baptism. That just mentioned that we're with Christ, right? In salvation. We're united to Christ. But now go to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says this. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into who? Into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, baptize, another word for baptize, good Baptists. What's another word for baptize? Immerse, right? Immerse, plunge. So you were immersed into the death. You were immersed into who? Christ and his what? His death. When Jesus died, you were taken and you were thrown into Christ, just plunged into him. So when he died, you died. He died for sin and to sin. You died to your own sin when Christ died. You were immersed and baptized into his death. And verse four says, therefore, we were buried with him by what? By baptism, by immersion into his death, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a newness of life. So this is spiritual baptism here. And our water baptism signifies and pictures this. When you were baptized into Christ, you were immersed into Him. And when He died, you died. When He rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. And the resurrection life He has that empowers Him to live for the glory of God, now empowers you to live for the glory of God. That doesn't mean you'll never sin. That doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin every day. You will. But it does mean you have resurrection power. You have the life of Christ in you because you are immersed in his death. You're immersed in his resurrection. You're immersed in him. He engulfs you. And that's what baptism signifies. When we baptize you and we put you down in the water, we're signifying your immersion into Christ. You're you're dying with him. You're buried with him. When you come up out of the water... That's a signal that signifies your resurrection with Christ. And then you walk out of this baptismal tank and you're walking in the newness of life. Now that begins spiritually when you get saved by faith alone, not by works, not by baptism. But the water baptism is the signify is that it's the public declaration of your commitment to Christ. You make that you can make that in your own heart right now. Right? You could trust Christ right now as a non-Christian and trust him and be saved right now where you're sitting. But that's not public yet, that's private. It becomes public when you get baptized. It's the public profession of faith. It's the public commitment signaling your union with Christ and therefore your salvation. Now, there's two other things it signifies, and I'll just say these and quote the verses and move on. It also signifies regeneration. Again, baptism doesn't regenerate you, doesn't cause you to be born again. It signals it. It says in Titus 3, 5, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing, that's a a signal towards baptism, of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's that washing, regeneration. And then there's also cleansing. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so baptism signals 
your union with Christ and his death and resurrection. It's a public affirmation. It's a public profession of that union. It's a public profession of your cleansing and your new birth in Christ. That's what baptism is. But it's not only your public... So right now we're on public commitment to Christ. It's not only your public commitment to Christ. It's also the church's affirmation. And that's in your notes, right? The church's affirmation. Is that in your notes? Or no. The church's affirmation of the professing convert's faith. Did you hear that? It's not just your own public profession. It's the church's public affirmation that you are a Christian. That's why before we baptize people, we have a membership meeting, right? We have a members meeting and we share the testimony and we do a vote. Why? Because it's not just you publicly professing your faith. It's the church's affirmation publicly of your faith. And you're saying, well, where is that in the Bible? Matthew 28. I'm not going to go here in the details because we talked about this last week. Matthew 28 says, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them. But before Matthew 28 is Matthew 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. You have the keys to bind and loose. And in Matthew 18, who gets the keys? We talked about this last Sunday. Who gets the keys? The local church. The local church gets the keys to excommunicate. And by implication, the keys to incommunicate. Not just to loose, but also to bind. And so, baptism is a way of binding to Christ. It signifies your union to Christ. And so when you get to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, that's a function of the keys of the kingdom. To baptize. So who? So, so what is baptism? It is the church's affirmation of your public profession of faith. And it is your personal public, it's your personal public profession of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Tom Schreiner, New Testament theologian at um, Southern Baptist, Southern Seminary in Kentucky, says this. An unbaptized Christian was an anomaly, and there is no evidence that believers rejected baptism. So let me tell you a story of one of my friends that I share the gospel with. His name is Ben. Ben was a USC student. I spent time with him um, in Bible studies, personally, one-on-one, in, in Bible studies in groups at USC. He even visited our church in L.A. several times, heard the gospel, and was very interested in Christ, but never came to faith in Christ. Then we sat at a restaurant. We were reading the Bible, and he said, PJ, I'm a Christian. I do believe in this. I do want to commit myself to Christ. And I said, great. Praise the Lord. After all this time, we've been praying for you. People have been getting to know you. Well, then I said, you know what you need to do? You need to get baptized and he said whoa i don't want to get baptized and i said why not he said my parents back in my homeland he was an international student my parents in my homeland will get so upset with me if i get baptized so i said ben you need to repent from your sins and trust in jesus he said he already did I'm saying you need to. You need to trust Jesus so much that you're willing to get baptized even to the, to the um, disagreement of your parents. And if you don't, I don't know if your faith is real. Now, was I right? 
or was I wrong? So I showed him, I said, let's go to Matthew chapter 10. And I read Matthew 10, I'll read it to you, 32 to 39. It says this, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, Jesus says, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. For I came to turn a man against his father. A daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. And I just said, Ben, you know Jesus, you know the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's going to be the public way of knowing whether you really trust in him. Jeremy Young, who's going to be preaching here tonight, he tells a story of some people, I think it's in Hacienda Heights, some religion that I've never heard of, and I can't remember the name of it, but the parents said, you can go to Bible study, and you could do all those Christian things, but you better not get baptized. Even non-Christians understand that when you get baptized, that's drawing the line, right? That's saying you're all in at that point. That's a public statement of it, and that's what, that's what baptism is. It's a public, it's your public profession of faith. It's the church's public affirmation of your faith. Secondly, though, on, on this, it's, a, it's not only your public commitment to Christ, we all got that, but did you know that it's also your public commitment to Christ's people? And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's not the main point of baptism, but it's there. Baptism is how you commit to the church initially. If you want to join this church or any gospel church that's teaching the Bible and you haven't been baptized, they're going to say you need to get baptized to join the church. Because baptism is how you commit to the church initially. You don't do that to every church you join, but the first time you get saved. Or the the only time you get saved. When you first get saved, I should say. Not the first time you get saved, sorry. When you first get saved, you get baptized. And that's your initiation into the people of God. That's how you commit. But it's also how the church commits to you. Right? What do I say when we take in a new member? If you are willing to take responsibility for this person's discipleship, because they are willing to take responsibility for your discipleship, say yes. Don't say it right now. This is not a real vote. But say yes. And if you're opposed, say no. Why? This is a public affirmation of the church that we are now committing ourselves to you as one of our family members. And you are publicly committing to us as one of our family members. Where does it say this in the Bible? Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41 says this. You know, um, Peter said, repent and believe. And then 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Added to who? To them. Who's the them? The church. They were added to the church. Committed to the church. Church committed to them. Ephesians 4.5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It unites us. We all have one baptism. 1 Corinthians 12.13, We are all baptized into one spirit, into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. We are baptized into the body of Christ. That's what baptism signals. Okay? It's not just a public profession of your faith in Christ and the church's affirmation. It's also a public profession of your commitment to Christ's people and the church's public profession of their commitment to you. That's baptism. 
Okay, I have a lot of other questions here, um, like, you know, Ethiopian eunuch and all that stuff. We can talk about that later because I have 15 minutes and we still got to get to the Lord's Supper. So let's get to the Lord's Supper. That's baptism. Okay, oh, one, one, one word of application before we get to the Lord's Supper. Here's the application for baptism. If you have been united to Christ in his death and you're raised to walk in newness of life, kill sin in your life. Don't tolerate sin. That's the whole point of Romans 6. Should we keep on sinning because we're forgiven of all our sins? Yes or no? No, why not? Because you're united to his death. You died to sin. Why, why would you still live in it? You're raised to newness of life. Doesn't mean you won't struggle, but fight to kill sin. Consider yourselves dead to sin, Romans 6, 11 or 12 says. Okay, that's the application of baptism. Now, Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? Now, there's a lot of names for the Lord's Supper. Let me hear some from you. Have you ever heard other names for the Lord's Supper? Communion. What else? Eucharist. Okay, or sometimes the Lord's table or the breaking of bread, right? Okay, what are these? Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll just camp out here for the rest of our time. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. We won't go all the way to 34. And we're not going to go verse by verse here. We're just going to pick up some highlights here. But it's called the Lord's Supper because Jesus ate this as his last supper. It's called communion because of 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Communion means fellowship or partnership, sharing. So that's the word in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 that we share in the bread. We commune in the bread. Uh, Eucharist, those of you who know Greek, you know what Eucharisteo means? Anyone who knows Greek? Give thanks. When Jesus broke the bread, he gave what? Thanks. And that's why we call it Eucharist. That's the Roman Catholic's favorite title for it. Breaking bread. Jesus broke bread, and so that's why we call it breaking bread. But what is the Lord's Supper? Here's what we say in our Baptist faith and message. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize or remember the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. Okay? That's what it is. It's an act of obedience where we take the bread and the fruit of the vine to remember the death of Christ and his second coming. That's the definition there. Now, is this the same thing as baptism? No. What are some differences? Baptism you do how many times? Once. How many times do you do Lord's Supper? As often as you eat it in remembrance of me. So you do it repeatedly. Baptism is the initial sign of faith in Christ and commitment to his people. The Lord's Supper is the renewal sign, initial sign, renewal sign of commitment to Christ and commitment to Christ's people. Now, there are similarities. They both are ordained by Christ. That's why we call them ordinances. And they do mark off publicly. They do mark off those who are publicly affirmed as Christians. So what does it mean? What's the significance of it? I think I have how many functions did I write in your note? Six. Six functions, and then we'll be done, okay? Six functions of the Lord's Supper, some applications sprinkled through, and then we'll be done. What are the six functions, or what does it mean? What's the significance of the Lord's Supper? Number one, and we won't linger long on these, okay? Connection to Passover. The Lord's Supper is connected to Passover. Jesus, when he took the bread in Luke twenty-two thirteen, the Last Supper, he said that, or he told them to go and prepare the Passover. It was a Passover meal. Listen to Exodus 12, 12 through 14. Do you know the story of the Passover? Okay, here, here's what it says. Well, so God is giving, he gave nine plagues to the people of Egypt to break his slave, his people, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And so, 
he gave them a lamb. He said, kill this lamb, put the blood on the door, and I'm going to pass over you. And you're going to celebrate this every year. Listen to Exodus 12, verses 12 to 14. This is God talking now to Israel. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. It's a public mark. It's a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you. Remember this. And you must celebrate. It's not gloomy. You must celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh the Lord. You are to celebrate it through your generations as a permanent statue. The Passover meal of the Old Covenant people was the marker of God passing over them and not judging them for their sins because a lamb was killed in its place. And here's Jesus tying the Lord's Supper, continuing it from the Old Covenant, but giving it, heightening the meaning to Christ himself, the ultimate Passover lamb. So that's number one, connection to Passover. Number two, it signifies the Lord's death. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. 11, 24 says this. They gave thanks and broke it and and he said, or he gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my what? Body, which is for you. So it's his body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the, the death of Christ, his body broken, is symbolized in the Lord's Supper. We are to remember Christ hanging on the cross. Not the way the Roman Catholics do with a crucifix, where they have statues not only of a cross, but they even have Jesus, a little statue of Jesus on the cross. That's not how we remember Christ's death on the cross. We remember it through the bread, which is broken for, for, for us in Christ, and that's how you remember it. Now, the command here is to do what? Do this in what? Remembrance. You are to remember the cross of Christ. Why? Remembering things... When do you remember things? Right now. You're remembering things from the what? From the past. But when are you remembering it? Right now. And when you remember things in the past, it shapes your right now into the future. Just think about it. Isn't amnesia one of the most terrifying things to have? Permanent amnesia? Right? You think about that. And why is it so terrifying? What have you lost? Your what? Your memory. And that's it. You're saying, well, what's the big deal with memory? When you lose your memory, who do you know now? Who are you? What are you going to do today? What's your plans for the next year or next week? It all depends on your memory, right? You forget who you are. You forget who you know. You forget what day or year it is. How do you function in the now, into the future? Remembering is super important. It's, it's crucial to how you live as a Christian. If you don't know your family and friends, you don't know who you are, you don't know the present, you can't plan for the future... And you know what? Many Christians, we suffer from spiritual amnesia that causes us today not to live in light of the gospel or our spiritual family or our new spiritual identity in Christ. We lose sight of our proper ambitions to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We lose our focus because we forget who we are and so we fail to plan and live accordingly. So what does Jesus want us to remember? If there's one thing He wants us to remember in all of the Bible... What's the one thing he wants for us to remember? His death on the cross. His body broken. Why? This 
Death of Christ on the cross is the center of your life. It drives everything in your life. It defines who you are. And when you forget this, you'll make stupid choices. You'll make sinful choices. You'll make choices that don't seek first the kingdom of God, but seek first your kingdom. Because you have forgotten that Christ has died for you and his body was broken for you. And so Jesus is jealous. God is jealous to make sure that at the forefront of your mind, regularly, repeatedly, individually and as a church, is the cross of Christ. Cross-centered living. We're driven by the cross of Christ. We're driven by the death and resurrection of Christ. If he doesn't die for our sins and rise from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied. But if Christ died for us and he rose for us, that defines my marriage. That defines my pastoring. That defines my membership. That defines my conversations here today with people. That defines an argument. That defines disagreements. That defines how I love my neighbors. That defines what I do with my money and my time. It defines everything in my life. Remember the body of Christ regularly, repeatedly. It recenters us and it refocuses us on what is truly important. And in it, we proclaim the Lord's death. That's secondly. So we remember the Lord's death. Third, look at verse 25. This cup. This cup is the what? The new covenant established by my blood. So this cup is the new covenant. So this is the third thing. It signifies the new covenant. And remember what I said in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It's not like the old covenant. It says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. Praise God. God has promised with a covenant that he will forgive us of all of our sins and never remember them. We just talked about the importance of memory. There's also the importance of forgetfulness, right? Praise God that he does not remember and act on our sins. But he forgets. He chooses to forget. Chooses not to bring it up and live by that memory. This is the new covenant established by the blood because covenants were always established by blood in the Bible. It was a life and death issue. And so Christ's death on the cross, his blood spilled for us, the fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. When we're plunged into that baptism and the Lord's Supper showing our participation in it, we're forgiven of all our sins. Not by doing it, it signifies our communion with Christ and with each other in the gospel. So the Lord's Supper is for sinners, but not for every sinner. It's only for repentant sinners who are forgiven and trusting in Christ. Again, if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you. I would invite you. You get forgiveness of all of your sins. You get the forgetfulness of God given to you as a gift. He will forget all of your sins and give you his law on your heart so that you'll not just do what he says, you'll love doing what he says. What a gift. Just trust in Christ and turn from your sins and you can have that gift too. So that's third, the new covenant. Number four, it's future oriented. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Luke twenty-two fifteen through 17 says this. Jesus said, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. 
He will not drink of the cup until he drinks it anew with us in the Father's kingdom, he says in First Corinthians or in, in Luke 22. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just looking at the past. We're remembering that this world is not our home, right? Praise God that we're not going to be in this earth forever. Amen? There's going to be a new earth with new bodies. No curse, no sin, no evil, no decay, no pain, no tears. It's future-oriented. Number five. Fifthly, Lord's Supper is communal. It, it cares about the fellowship of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. We read these last week. Let's look at it again. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Look at 10.17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are what? One body. one body. For all of us share that one bread. So because there's one bread that we're all sharing in, we all become one what? Body. body. One corporation, one corporate entity, one body. So the Lord's Supper signifies our unity as the church, as a church. 1 Corinthians 11, go to chapter 11. Look at verses 17 to 22. This is horrible. The church at Corinth was horrible in their Lord's Supper. Here's what they did. Look at verse 17. Now, in giving the following instruction, I don't praise you, since you come together not for better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Why are you divided? You're supposed to be one church. And in part, I believe it. Verse 19. There must indeed be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it's not really the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're calling it the Lord's Supper. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's your supper. Why? Verse 21. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church? You look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing. What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I don't praise you for this. You're looking down on the church. And what is the church? Not the building, the people, right? Because you're eating and drinking before others what? Before others show up. You're looking down on the church. Now, they met on the Lord's Day, which is what day? Sunday. Sunday. When was the Sabbath day for Jews? Saturday. Saturday. Sunday was a work day. You're probably meeting in the evening. But if you're rich, you don't have to show, you don't have to show up to work all the time. You could take some time off. You could show up early. Or you could show up on time. And guess what? When it's communion meal, which was probably every Sunday for them, when it was communion meal, they started eating before the rest of the people got off work and got there. And then when they got there, there was no more food. And they, they not only ate, they indulged. They were overflowing with, with fullness of food. And they're drunk off the wine. And, and you're calling this the Lord's Supper? Where you're one body? This isn't one body. You're looking down on each other, on the church of God. In other words, communion is not an individual act for you alone. It shows the communion, the community of faith, publicly. It publicly marks off those who are part of the community of faith. That's why when you get to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, it says this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against, his, against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. So examine yourself. And we'll get to that next, next, our sixth point. But look at this in verse 29. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the what? Without recognizing the body, 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you don't recognize the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. My, uh, well, and that's, that's why we need self-examination. This is a communal picture. Let's go to the last one because they tie together. Number six, lastly. So not only is it communal, tied to that communal, communion aspect is there's, it's a place for self-examination and judgment. Self-examination and judgment. Verse 29 says, um, or verse 27 says, examine yourself, right? Or verse 28, examine yourself in this way before you eat and drink. Why? What were they doing? They were sinning against who? The body. Each other, right? And when you sin against each other, who else are you sinning against? God, most importantly. You sin against each other, you sin against God. And then you take the Lord's Supper after sinning? No. You examine yourself first and you repent. And you trust in Christ. Now, is it recognizing the body of Christ or the body of the church? In verse 29. I see Ken go like this. And you know what? Let me, let me encourage you, brother. Uh, one of the, another professor, uh, Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary, writes this. The idea of corporate personality, whereby one stands for the many and the many are represented in the one, informs the reference to the body in 11.29. No distinction should be drawn between the body of Jesus and the church. Both are in view. Because when you sin against the body, who are you sinning? You're sinning against the church. Who are you sinning against? Christ, right? And so, and if you're sinning against Christ, it's going to affect the body. If you don't deal with sin in your life and you don't repent, you keep coming and taking communion every month, you're going to be destroying the body, the people. You're going to be less helpful to the people as you walk in unrepentance. Either way, you don't divide the two. Church or communion is a worship of Christ and it's a communal aspect of building up and affirming and strengthening the body. So examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper and then take it together. What if you have sin against another person? Or you have a, a tense relationship with another person? What should you do before communion? Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Last verse. Okay, last verse. And then we're going to close. If you are... Jesus, this, these are Jesus' words. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you aren't reconciled to other brothers and sisters, here's good news. Guess what? You get to go to them and what? Reconcile. Ask them for forgiveness. Or if they sinned against you, or if there's ice in the relationship, say, have I sinned against you? I need to make sure I haven't sinned against you or against others so that as I take communion, I'm doing it in a worthy way. Not sinning against the body of Christ. You, you, you don't do any harm by not taking communion one, Sunday, one of the Sundays because you haven't reconciled yet. You actually obey Christ. If you take communion and you haven't reconciled with people, you're actually disobeying Christ. Better to not take it one month. We'll take it again next month. It's not the end of the world. Just skip it. Refrain. Repent first. Obey God. Make right. Come back next month and take the Lord's Supper with us. Doesn't know you say, well, I'll do it eventually. Let me just take it now. No, you're disobeying Christ disobeying Paul, disobeying God when you take it in an unworthy way. The Lord's Supper is for sinners, but only for repentant and forgiven, forgiven sinners who are, who were and are still publicly identified with Christ and his people. This is, by the way, why I say, because it's a public identification marker of the church. This is why I say, before we take communion, if you've repented from your sins, trusted in Christ, and you're a member of a church that preaches the same gospel you heard preached here, we welcome you to the table. 
Why do I say it like that? Because it's not just your own personal affirmation of your faith. It's the public affirmation of God's people who exercise the keys that you are a person of faith. And that's what the communion signals. The communion of the body of those who are publicly identified. Not just when they were baptized 30 years ago or 10 years ago, but they're still publicly being affirmed by a church. And so that's why we do it. But here's the blessing. And here's the main application here. Let's keep our memories fresh. Let's remind ourselves of the cross every day. And when we take communion, let's especially remember the cross of Christ and let that be the guide for our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death for us. We thank you for your resurrection for us. We pray, Lord, that we would not forget the cross. Even though we only take the Lord's Supper once a month, we pray that we would remember the cross every Sunday and every day. That every Sunday we'd remind each other of Christ's death and resurrection. And that every day of our week when we're sharing life or reading our Bibles or sending a card to each other or a phone call or visiting one another, that we would remember the death and resurrection of Christ. And remember our union with Him, which reminds us that we are to kill sin in our lives. Thank you, Father, for these two gifts, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that help mark out your people and help us grow as a church, communing together with each other, most importantly with you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.